I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Okay, hello. Welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always is Jeff Goad. Hi. You shall know him by his hair, by his height, and by his heart. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Jeff, what are we reading this week? Uh, This week we're reading Lynn Carter's Giant of World's End from 1969. Very cool. And this is the only printing of this book. They only printed it uh, that one time, and it's from Belmont Books with a very... um, Moody Jeff Jones cover. Uh, Why don't you tell us what it says on the back there? An unlikely band of heroes, a woman who loved in vain, a magician who loved only wisdom, and a warrior to whom love was a genetic impossibility, fought the doom that filled the skies of their strange world. And it came to pass that Zelobian, the magician, and Ganelon Silvermane set forth from the land of the great stone face and took the first steps of their gigantic journey across the world, a journey so long and fearful and so filled with wonders that no man since time began until that hour had undertaken a like adventure. But their mission was a logical impossibility. Hence, what purpose is undertaking it? Only that the moon was falling. Printed in the USA. Oh, wait, is that not part of it? (laughs) (laughs) That's what it says underneath it. Uh, Okay, so... So, yeah, this is Lynn Carter, who is best known, perhaps, as... um, the co-author and co-editor of the Lancer uh, Conan books, along with Elspreg de Camp, and more famously the um, editorial consultant for the Ballantine Adult Fantasy series. Um, but this is the first uh, solo fiction of his that I've been reading. And what did you think of it, Jeff? Well, um, before I get into that, I do want to quickly say that I feel like um, your copy looks like it was freshly minted just the other day, and mine looks like it has been chewed up and digested and shout out by a dog. <laughs> well, I didn't tell you about my time machine. Did I? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, yours is stunning. Um, and actually, before we get into what I thought about the book, uh, I'd also, let's, let's go into our Hygaxian word of the day. All right, let's go for it. Lucent. Lucent. And lucent means glowing with or giving off light. And lucent is featured, I found twice in the text, on page 28, They were of polished and lucent crystal and caught the light above in glittering flakes of sparkling fire. And the second occurrence of it is uh, somebody is speaking and he says, Each monolith is 70 meters tall and built of desert sand and pure sulfur, fused into lucent crystal by fire magic. Oh, it's the ship who's speaking there, actually. Oh, the... uh cybernetic intelligence ship, right? Exactly. Um, so, whew, we're done with our Gagaxian word of the day. We're into the library. What did I think of this book? I didn't really like it. Ah, okay. Is that your first one that you didn't really like, or would you say this is... Uh, uh, I would say this is my least favorite one we've read so far. Okay. Because, uh, you know, with the Blue Star, the Blue Star was, was, was well-written, it just didn't really excite me on an Appendix N level, sure. necessarily. And Three Hearts and Three Lions was um, a little dull, and I didn't think um, it didn't really grab me. But there was still so much kind of fun Appendix N stuff there that it really kind of kept me going. Giant of World's End, I had 
multiple problems with. Mm -hmm. I'll first start by saying I didn't hate it. Um, and um, I will also say it's short. Right. So 141 <laughs> pages. Uh -huh. So I appreciate that it's short at least. Um, but yeah, I, I've got several problems with it. The first issue I have is that it is, it is unnecessarily dense. Mm -hmm. There is just tons and tons of lengthy info dumps. And it reminds me of when you're watching Family Guy. And somebody says something and they're like, oh, well, that reminds me of. And then they kind of uh, fade away to some kind of funny side scene. Uh, it's like if you did that, but like stripped away all of the humor. That's what was constantly happening in Giant of World's End, where they would mention something that actually does have something to do with the plot. But then they would kind of go on this tangent where for the next paragraph or two, they're just saying like, well, and that item was found by Jinxalon of the Metafarsal uh, peoples who lived in this portion of the galaxy for uh, from Nebulon 13. To, it's just lots and lots of information about peoples and cultures and things that don't matter, don't move the story forward, have no bearing on anything. And it's just kind of distracting me from actually getting through the text. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, I think what he's trying to do, and obviously not successfully for you, is try to impress upon us that this is essentially the end of time and that all of human history is past and it's weighing down on these characters. And this is the, basically the last continent. The moon has gotten so tugged down by gravity that's about to fall onto the Earth. So it's basically his, among other things, it's his dying Earth mm -hmm. uh, story, although there's some other influences that are cited by his literary executor, um, such as the Zothique, uh stories by Clark Ashton Smith. Sure, and he mentions and, the Zothique stories in his introduction and does mm -hmm. not mention dying Earth, which is interesting to me. Right, right, because um, he's, he's trying to do all the sort of the witty language that Jack Vance does, but it doesn't, doesn't, you know, wear naturally on him. It doesn't. And... In response to what you're saying about how what he was trying to do was similar to what Jack Vance was doing with Dying Earth, I, I would agree that that's what he's trying to do. And yes, I, I would say that he's failing there because Jack Vance manages to paint, paint a portrait of a world that is unknowably uh, complicated with layers and layers upon history, that the, the, the vast majority of which has been forgotten. And he paints this like real. He paints this universe very beautifully, where Lynn Carter, I think, instead of trying to paint that universe by allowing us to experience the relics that are left behind and the strange ways in which the peoples behave from town to town, instead, Lynn Carter's just telling us like, "Oh, this crazy thing happened here, and these crazy people did this." And I also feel like it's Lynn Carter's attempt at making the world seem like it has this really st this solid foundation. Because like J.R.R. Tolkien, clearly, um, by the time he got to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, had a really deep understanding of the world he was writing in. And I think Lynn Carter is trying to make us believe that he also has this deep understanding of the world around it by just kind of constantly throwing out facts about the world. Right. It might be that, more word salad than anything else. Yeah, it does, but they don't mean anything. Right, it doesn't right. matter to the story. Right. So it's just like, tell me story. Don't just give me facts that don't pertain to what I'm experiencing. So would it be fair to say that this novel is a giant set of box text from the beginning of a module? Uh, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. No, totally. It feels very info dumpy. Yeah. And my second problem with it, and this is where I fully, fully, fully acknowledge, I've done this before, I, 
my opinions are not going to be consistent. So please don't <laughs> judge me for that. Don't I, add him. <laughs> absolutely. It's funny because I, I will bitch about The Hobbit and then in, the, in just a few episodes later, praise Jack of Shadows for the exact same kind of thing. And I'm about to do this right now because I adored Kothar mm-hmm. and Kothar was a total Conan ripoff. And I did not enjoy Giant of World's End. And part of it, part of the reason I didn't enjoy it is because it was such a shameless ripoff of The Dying Earth. Mm -hmm. Now, why am I okay with Kothar and not okay with Giant of World's End? Is with Kothar, it really feels like uh, Gardner uh, Gardner Fox is like wearing the fact that this is a Conan ripoff, homage, pastiche, not pastiche. Cash in. Uh, yeah. Like he's, he's wearing it like with, with, with kind of a smile and a smirk and like, and a wink. Right. Um, I don't, that's not the sense that I get from giant of giant of world's end. It really feels like Lynn Carter is trying to pass this off as his own creation. And this book was written in, uh, 1969. So it was written almost 50 years ago. I have no idea what he was thinking or what his mental process was at the time or what the context uh, was at the time that he wrote this. So I might be way off base here, but from where I'm at right now reading this, it really felt like he was trying to pass this off as kind of his own creation. And it was just a failure to me Hmm. in that that sense. It is, uh, uh, again, we don't have... uh... Uh, hotline to the world, the land of the dead, um, <laughs> or do we? Uh, but it, it is only I think eight years after um, the Dying Earth was reprinted, and then only four years after Eyes of the Overworld was printed. So it's like very much the Jack Vance books were very much in like recent memory, mm-hmm. so to speak. And you can see, as you said, that Gardner Fox had a sense of humor about what he was doing, and you can see that there are scenes that are nominally meant to be funny in this book. But the actual book itself doesn't have a sense of humor. Like the scenes. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and that may be actually a difference in disposition between, you know, Lynn Carter and Gardner Fox for all I know. And, I, you know, I know that Lynn Carter actually did take, you know, what he was doing with the Valentine adult fantasy series and all that very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hate to use this word, but maybe it's that sort of fanboy made good mentality. Um, you know, not transcending his influences, right? I think that's what he, one of the things he's been accused of. I was basically doing Edgar Rice Burroughs, doing Jack Vance, doing Robert E. Howard, but then not taking it to the next step, the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe also that's the difference between him and Gardner Fox is that uh, Lynn Carter was known as essentially coming through this, I um, mean, his, his writing career really only took off in the sort of mid-60s. Before that, he was a copywriter at, at agency. Uh, I'm sure he was a fan for a long time, but that he's sort of coming through this as a fan. Gardner Fox was a fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs and all that, but he was a professional writer for years and years and years, decades before he did the, before he did the Kothar books. So, you know, it was just one more thing, one more outlet for the things he was doing. And, and you know, I think maybe Lynn Carter maybe didn't have as much perspective on what he was doing, Yeah, in a sense. Uh, at least... Just looking from the text, not mm-hmm. even from, again, as I say, our hotline to the world of the dead. Um, but uh, I, I enjoyed it more than you did, um, which is not to say that I love this book by any means. I, I would say it's probably a solid three star out of five in my, in my universe. Yeah, I've been rating all of the books that I've been reading on Goodreads, and this is the first one I've given a two uh-huh. okay. stars to. I don't think I've given any a two star. I think um, 
but I don't know, maybe I'm just assigning a sort of, you know, half a star for historical value for a lot of books or something like that. So. Yeah. And for the record, uh, the way that I've been rating them on Goodreads is not based on how good of a story I think they are. It's based on how much I enjoyed it as a reading experience. And in that sense, I gave it a two. And I mean, we're going to really dive into this book, but I, I would say that despite the way I felt about it, there's a ton of stuff that you can take from this book and really use in your games. There is there are really interesting ideas at play here. Mm-hmm. I just didn't enjoy the act of reading this book. Because before we went into the podcast to record this today, I was going through and looking at the stuff that I had highlighted. And while I was doing that, I was actually kind of enjoying like revisiting some of the things I had highlighted. So I actually do like the some of the stuff that's in here. I just didn't enjoy reading it. Mm-hmm. So maybe your book... The reason why it's so beat up is it's actually ultimately meant to be cut up into little things to be pasted onto index cards for you <laughs> for your use at the table. Yeah, possibly. Uh, <laughs> but like even to the point, and possibly this is this is homage, but it, I don't know. But like the the major city that they go to the end is called Vandalex, and I'm like Jack Vance, Vandalex. Yeah, yeah. Um, the there's the the big wizard in Dying Earth is Pandaloom, and there's another place here called Pandalore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and perhaps that's him being winky. I don't know. And this is where I start to kind of wonder, like, why does this one bristle me? And with Kothar, you know, I feel like when you're kind of just writing kind of a trashy little story, um, you can get away with a lot more. But this didn't really feel like a trashy little story. It felt like somebody was trying to write, you know, kind of a really kind of beautiful, interesting Fantasy right. sort novel. Of moody epic, you know, yeah. there's, there's there's unrequited love, there's, you know, the end of the un- the end of the world as we know it. Yeah. Um hmm, yeah, it's, it's a good question. And certainly the protagonist himself is probably the least uh, which is Ganelon Silvermane, which uh, we should talk about the characters. Yeah, yeah. But, but I guess we can get off my we don't want to make this an entire like hour long rant of me okay. just talking about why I don't like Giant right. World's End. Right. So the first two characters uh that we sort of encounter are Ganelon Silvermane, who is basically this construct who's been buried in this vault against the day that the, the world will come to an end and he's basically a superhuman warrior yeah he was created by the time lords yeah and the time lords are these time kind of gods oh time gods thank right. you the yeah. time gods and the time gods are kind of these uh entities who throughout the, the history of mankind have placed these well-timed births so these people who uh can come into the world at just the time that we need them. Mm-hmm. And Ganelon Silvermane is one of those people who is here now at just the time that we need him. Right. And, and the first scene we have him is he defeats 17 warriors in incredibly gruesome fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me actually a little bit of um, that anime and manga, Fist of the North Star. It's also superhuman, you know, giant warriors. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen it. Um, but yeah, he's like massive. He's like way taller than Conan. He's right. got like shimmering metallic hair that's like the fibers are actually metal. Mm-hmm. And some gigantic scimitar that's, you know, I don't know, six feet tall or something like that. And yes. He's basically humorless. Yes. Um, he's sort of um, a blank slate. There's, in fact, this whole bit where he then encounters his first opponent, who is Zalobion the Magician, who's this older magician with a green green mustache and beard. And, and it, this, this is the moment where I will say my first nice thing yeah. about this book. Um, I thought I think Zalobian is a great name, mm-hmm. and I would like to steal that for a character some point because <laughs> Zalobian the magician is just a cool name for a character. Yeah. And he's actually maybe ultimately becomes more of our point of view character. He's this old guy who wants to die in bed, but he's you know dragged along on this adventure with the Ganelon because he knows that he he himself doesn't want the world to end either, uh, despite his initial opposition. And he also is not uh, visually your your normal dude. He's got a bright green beard. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and he has uh, his, he's developed his own school of magic over the, his centuries of his life. It's, it's basically vocal magic, right? He has to say these words of power. Oh, I did not pick up on that. That That's unique to him? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, or, oh, Or that I he's gone further down that. that road. Yeah, the school and adept. Uh, maybe he's uh, maybe the right way to say that he's gone further down that road than any other magician. So he says the school of pho- phonemic thaumaturgy, um, an adept of the school of phonemic thaumaturgy, and he's got some certain words that other people don't have yet. Yeah. Um, and going through and reading some of the highlighted text, one thing that I enjoyed reading the highlighted versions of, and not the actual text of, but it was neat when they met because basically Ganelon Silvermane walks up to Zalobi and the magician and is like, "You were supposed to join me on this adventure." And Zalobian's like, no, I'm not going to go on your adventure. That's stupid. Why would I do that? Right. And then Ganelon is like, well, why don't you go ahead and do your vocable of um, infallible sortilage? And and Zalobian's a little bit like, huh, how do you know about that? And so he does his vocable of infallible sortilage, uh, which is basically the spell where, like, he can find out the future. And he casts it, and he doesn't indeed see himself joining Ganelon Silvermane on this quest. So he's like, all right, I guess I'll join you. All right, you win. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that's my future. Right. Which so is he, kind of beautiful in, like, its ridiculous right. r- ridiculous simplicity. Right. And then he ultimately becomes a member of the party. He's like, oh, he wishes he would die in bed. But he actually, even at, some, at one point, in, in some ways, is more noble than Ganelon because Ganelon is designed to be noble, mm-hmm. where Zalobion is doing this essentially out of free will, right? So he s- literally sells himself into slavery uh, when Ganelon is severely wounded in order to yeah. get the medicine for, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, get Ganelon from, uh, I guess he was poisoned too, wounded and poisoned, right, too. And he's the only character who gets a happy ending. Right. Um, and then the third member who they encounter later on is this Amazon woman warrior. Arzila, the woman warrior of Khand. Right, and she uh, ultimately falls, she is the woman who loves in vain, and because and, Ganelon is... Engine, not engineered to be able to feel love. And yes. So she goes on this adventure with him. She, I forget. I Because th- they do specifically say that, like, he does have man parts. They just don't do anything. Right. Because, yeah, because, like, he's he's not there to have biological, like, biological impulses. So right. the desire for sex just isn't there. Right. As if they didn't... Uh, he is not there for emotional reasons. Right. He doesn't fall in love. He's right. there for a very specific purpose, which we also haven't discussed right. yet. They didn't check off that option on the box when they, uh, you know, when he was... Uh, <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, the thing here is on Dying Earth, they're, they're, it's far, far in the future. The sun is bloated mm-hmm. and it's about to go out any day now. Here in uh, Gondwain which, for the record, it's called Gondwain after Gondwana land because, you know, it, 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 uh, at the beginning of time, all of the continents were one continent. They separated. And then in the introduction, Lynn Carter talks about how some geologists believe that they will all reform together into one ginormous continent, supercontinent again at the end of time. So here we are in Gondwain, this continent at the end of time. And the moon is gigantic and bloated because it's falling very slowly and it's eventually going to crash into Earth and destroy it. Right, within 9,000 years. Within the next 9,000 years. So the, the clock is ticking. Right. Hurry up quick, 9,000 right. years. And uh, Ganelon Silvermane is here to grab Zalobian and go figure out how they can prevent that yeah, from save happening. Save the Earth. Save the Earth. Right. Um, so again, yeah, it has a sort of, uh, maybe maybe some anime and manga readers read this later on. Um, it definitely has that vibe. Uh, but yeah, so they meet. Um, sorry, what was the name of the woman warrior again? Uh, Arzila. Arzila. Um, so, so she's supposedly a mighty woman warrior, but she's also, uh, um, you know, has feelings. She has feelings, man. <laughs> <laughs> and in our last episode, um, I had discussed how when uh, the characters from Hyro's journey 
got aboard Captain Gimp's ship. He like said some funny things discussing their their funny appearances. We have almost an identical paragraph here in uh, Giant of World's End because there's a moment where the three of them are getting onto a new ship, but this is the land ship that you find on the uh, the vast plains of Vlad, the great plains of Vlad. But they, they get aboard the ship and it says, he had never seen their like before. The strange old man in the torn robe with his seaweed green beard, the Amazon, the Amazonian warrior girl with her metal breastplates and kilt of leathern straps, and the towering young giant with the fantastic banner of rippling silver hair who leaned silently on his enormous scimitar. So once again, we've got another motley crew of adventurers. Right, right. Um, I can almost see like the character design sheets like of them just like there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, it's almost a party. I mean, it's three it's three characters. You've got a wizard and two sort of warriors. So three people's a party, right? Right. Well, <laughs> it I is where I come from. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say I'd say kind of your standard adventuring party is usually like three to five, maybe right. three to six players. Sure. So yeah, but uh, as you say, there's almost identical scene. But she, I feel, is just not as well characterized as Luchari. No, uh, you know the companion. Um, she basically. You know, she comes to the rescue and has a few sort of action scenes, but then she basically, after that, you know, falls in love with, with Ganelon, who's unable to even process that she is in, lo- in love with him, and then so she mopes, and there's a, at the end of the story, we won't give it away, but we find, you know, as you say, there's happy endings only for Zenobion, so. Uh, are, you, are you sure you don't want to give it away? Because actually, I think there's interesting stuff to discuss. Oh, well, then let's give it away. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, we're going to give it <laughs> away right. for free. Spoiler territory. Spoiler territory. Um, I mean, but yeah. Right, we've never, we've never claimed that we weren't going from to. From episode zero, we said we will, we will do spoilers. So here we go. So, yes, in the end, um, they do manage to um, deal with the moon. And the, the way that they do that is they find this this like wand of like theta magnetism in this uh, floating city of super technology, and we can worry about how we get there later. But um, but in using this wand, the person who's going to do it is going to explode the moon and fix this problem. But they're going to die in the process. But because Arzila realizes that Ganelon Silvermane is never going to love her, she uh, drugs them. And they fall asleep, and she goes off and does it on her own, basically committing suicide because he'll never love her. And so the world is saved because of this great sacrifice of hers. But the thing about Arzila is that, you know, she 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 really isn't much of a character. She's kind of there to be saved when they first meet her. Then it seems like Lynn Carter doesn't really know what to do with her for the rest of the story until we get to the end. And then at the end, after she's kind of done some moping, she commit suicide to save the world. Um, and what happens is Zalobian ends up deciding to stay in this like technological city and and learn more. And he's very excited about this place. But Ganelon Silvermanes decides that he's going to go ahead and wander the earth trying to find out how to love. Mm-hmm. And to me, that also, again, just felt like a really cheap carbon copy of Tessace. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't know how to... She doesn't know how to see goodness in the world, so she goes on this adventure to learn how to. Um, right. right. Ganelon, this is never one of his stated desires in the book, right? It's only at the very end, whereas yeah. it's the very, from the very, you know, the get-go of her as a protagonist, when you start seeing through her eyes, that's what she wants to do, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he only has this, I wouldn't even call it a revelation, but, or a change of heart. He only has this at the end of the book. Everything else before, he just go, 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 mm-hmm. go. So... 
as you say, there's not much depth to Ganelon. And, yeah. and I understand what he's going for. They created, he's supposed to be this construct that's, you know, not even logical, but designed for a purpose. Uh, and then once his purpose is fulfilled, even if it's not by him, what's he left with? It's interesting that this book ultimately became the last book in the Skandwana series. Yeah. Uh, right, it's the prequel. Uh, it's, it's the first one published. Right. Um, but that he never wrote any sequels. So he never, never so see God, what... Uh, Ganelon does afterwards. I don't know if in the first five books he's the protagonist or if it's just showing more of the world. So we'll get to those when we get to those. Yeah, no clue. Um, but it's also interesting that this book was never reprinted, whereas the um, other five books were in print for a while and were reprinted in the early 2000s by Wildside Press. So it's inter- I, I don't know if there's a rights issue or you know people just didn't care as much about this book, even though it's the one that launched the series. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and maybe I, that's a good sign. Maybe yeah. that means that the other ones in the series actually, maybe they're better. Yeah, who knows? I we, hope we, so. We hope. <laughs> uh, again, I, you know, I, I didn't hate this, and I don't, I haven't come across one that I've hated. And, and also, yeah. maybe I was, uh, you know, we were talking, I think you were a little ahead of, of where I was at the point when you sort of gave your first reaction to this book. So maybe I'm, the contrarian of me was less disposed to hate this once you had mentioned that you didn't like it as much. That's true. And we had discussed, you yeah. know, the kind of expectations you have when you walk into a book really right. affects the book. So right. if I'm telling you, like, oh, my God, I'm reading it and it's a real slog. Right. And you pick it up and you're like, actually, I don't, it, it's yeah, better okay. than you. All right. You know, I only lost one foot in the mud there. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But what's also funny about this book is there are several times when uh, within the fiction, they're telling you that this is the greatest journey that any group of human beings have ever undertaken. Right. Never before has anybody undertaken a journey like this. Never, never, ever, ever. And while while they certainly cover a very, very long geographical distance, they do most of it by one of three ways. The first is they're on a ship, a very fast talking ship. Right, sentient robot yeah. ship. And the ship is cool. The yeah. ship is a very cool character, very character. And it's a cool scene, and we can talk about that in a second. Yeah. But... A third of their journey was on that. Then they got onto these uh, these basically uh, uh, griffins, but they're called gridens. Right. But they get on these gridens. They fly on those for right. thousands fly of miles. Fly those to death. They fly they... them literally to death, or yeah. one of them to right. literally to death. And then they get on a giant land ship. Right. And then they ride that for a long time. A long time until the wind basically blows those apart. Right. Yeah, until there's a, they like kind of come into a giant tornado, basically. Yeah. So, I don't know. I... I Right, in terms of incident, you're right. It's not like anywhere, like Bilbo does this all on foot and he's with a bunch of other doors, but we, we can say, count all the incidents that he goes through and each one is richer and more evocative than yeah. what happens here, right? And um, Hyro and his gang, course, right. they went a much shorter distance right. than these guys right. and they had, and I, I would say their adventures were far more epic right. than this. Right, right. Um, you know, maybe this is suffering in comparison to the context of what's around it. You know, I, I mean, I can't imagine I would ever have come across this book randomly and decided to pick it up and read it, like even back in the day. Yeah. You know, it, it just wouldn't have jumped out at me. It's like something I would have to read. Uh, I am glad I read it, though. It just reminded me of, like, if some, like, seven-year-old walked into this room right now and was like, I am the strongest person you have ever meet, met, and I can defeat you all at arm wrestling. But he's just, like, a seven-year-old who looks like a normal seven-year-old. Yeah. He'd be like, um... I'm not so sure about that little guy. Like, I'm, I'm glad you're so confident about that, but that's not really jiving with what I'm experiencing right now. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I always wonder, uh, I mean, Lynn Carter had a lot of series, and I'm wonder, again, we don't, we're not here to um, sort of psychoanalyze any of the writers, but it's interesting, like, how much of this was, each of these series was he doing out of a genuine appreciation and dedication to its 
it's four bears. Like, yeah. how much did he really love the Dying Earth to do this series? Um, how much did he love the Edgar Rice Burroughs books to do the Jandar of Callisto series or mm-hmm. the various barbarian books to do the Thongor of the Barbarians? Um, and how much of it is, um, you know, well, they were able to do it, and I'm an educated man. I ought to be able to do this. And, you know, <laughs> sure, <laughs> you know, professional sure. writer. I ought to be able to do this too, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, sometimes uh, some people, I think some people have been known to say that as a writer, he was a great editor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, w- and on that note, you know, we're about at the halfway mark on the episode here. Yeah. And I think maybe I would like to say that I am done crapping on this book for this episode. Okay. Um, there's Because there's, there really is a lot of great content to talk about here. So maybe... I will walk away from crapping on it from now and just kind of talk about like what is good about it and what is interesting about it sure. for the rest of the episode. Absolutely. So that so that it's not all just uh, um, Jeff ganging up on Lynn Carter. There you go. Uh, who clearly was a very important person, as you just said. In, right, right. In, I mean, we wouldn't have had the Ballantine adult literary... Uh, adult... Fantasy series. Adult, <laughs> <laughs> adult literary program. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and we wouldn't have had, uh, you know, after after school uh, programs and you know, <laughs> schoolhouse rock. Lynn Carter for teaching us all how to read. <laughs> right. Um, no, no. I mean, yes. He's he's as we go along, all these all the people you know who sometimes are controversial and fandom. Elsberg the camp, we owe a great debt to Lynn Carter. We owe a great debt to. Yeah. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about the last episode, we owe a huge debt to Sterling Lanier, even not as a writer, but he was the person who commissioned um, acquired Dune. For Chilton Books, because oh, you told me about that. Right, I which was about actually that. best known as a uh, publisher of automotive manuals, but then yes. he, he acquired Dune. So, um, yeah, I mean, so as you say, there's there's individually in scenes and, and bits of business that this that can be pulled out content that can be pulled out both from just like for the mind's eye and in gaming. I think there's a lot here. Oh yeah, as you say, as a narrative, maybe it doesn't quite hang. But let's talk about those scenes or things that jumped out at you. So sure, sure. Well, I guess I would say that there's there, there was a lot of really kind of just um, interesting world building and um, really kind of fun creative um, uh, creative directions that he took the story in. You know, initially, uh, one of the very first things that Ganelon and Zalobian do is they go and they visit the seven brains of Karchoy. And the seven brains of Karchoy are these pillars, these seven pillars where these great scientists and thinkers of the past had uh, imbued their intelligence with. And so their, their, their mortal bodies are long dead. And they've been sitting here for thousands, millions of years. I forget how long. Um, and they've just been thinking. And you can, they're thinking and researching and studying. Uh, and you're welcome to go to the seven brains of Karchoy. But People do it so rarely. Um, that's right, actually, because I, I, I just wrote down here a little note when I was going through earlier. Um, when they go to talk to their seven brains of Karchoy, one of them mentions that it has been eight million years since uh, a human has come to speak to them. So people don't swing by very often to speak right, to right. them. <laughs> but like they, they know everything about everything. That uh, One of them is like a geography uh, master, one is a mathematics master, one is a history uh, yeah, master. An astronomer, and so right. They're, they're, they're subject matter experts. So the greatest, the greatest minds in their fields in the, throughout the course of human history, essentially. Exactly. And eventually, you know, they're kind of in a, the DMV style. They're sent from one to the next and then back and forth. But eventually the geographer 
is able to tell them that although the seven brains of Karshoi all think it's very silly that they're trying to fix this moon problem, because why would you want to fix that? Just become immortal like them. And right. but uh, but they say like, please travel to the technological empire. You can maybe find out what you need to get there. And the, of course, that's on the other side of the continent. And right. they're like, it would. People have uh, gr- uh, have been born, grown old, and died traveling across the continent and not making it to the other end. Right. I, I did like that scene, too. It reminds me of um, far too many professors I've known over, <laughs> over my lifetime. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, or like maybe a little Statler and Waldorf from The Muppet Show to a certain extent. Uh, sure. But, yeah, I like that idea of... Um, you know, for example, if we were in a game, sending uh, characters to these various seers or, 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 you know, sources of knowledge, but then, you know, having to extract that knowledge mm-hmm. in, in, in between all their sort of like asides and personality quirks and, and, and you know, um, you know, buffoonishness of these otherwise like superhuman intelligences. So I think that that was a great scene. I think two of the sort of set piece battle scenes I think are terrific. The very first one where he defeats the seventeen warriors, mm-hmm. um, you know, in sort of the desert gates, and then the scene in the arena when he fights that sort of octopoid being. I can't remember what the name of that was, but that was a terrific, uh, terrifically done battle scene. Yeah, it was, and um, they had used a word to describe. Oh, they, they described it as a mariapod, okay. which I didn't know what that was, so I googled it, and a mariapod is actually like a centipede, because uh-huh. um, but they also but it also kept talking about its tentacles. Mm-hmm. So I, I was having kind of a hard time picturing what it looked like, but the, the battle scene was absolutely fantastic. I, I agree with that. Um, one, th- one, one interesting thing for me is I kept having flashes of the never-ending story while reading this. Oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite books. I read it the other year. For, yeah, for the book is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, I kept picturing the movie. Mm. And um, it was a couple of things. Like, one, the never-ending story has a lot of scenes where, like, you hop on Falcor and now you're flying to this location, or you get on like the super fast slug, and now you're here. There are lots of scenes where you're kind of like scurried from one remote corner of the universe to another. Mm. Um, also, there's, uh, you know, they go and they talk to the seven brains of Karchoy, and there are these pillars that have great knowledge. And in the never-ending story, you know, he goes to the those those two great sphinxes mm-hmm. and like asks them for, right, the for knowledge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then also the other thing is there is this vast area. Um, what is it called? I have it written down here somewhere. Um, it is the Trembling Land. And the Trembling Land is this vast area of Gondwain that is size, sinking, size, yeah. but invisibly. So basically, if you they were flying over them on their Grydens, and that's part of the reason they rode the Gryden to death, is they weren't sure that they had passed it. But it's an area where it has mountains and trees and hills and forests and lakes, just like any other part. But if you step on it, you're going to sink into it like it's quicksand. And you'll sink all the way to the center of the earth. Yes. And one of the things they talk about is how this area, the, the trembling land, how it's growing and how it's living and how it's like a cancer upon the earth. And it just got me thinking of like the nothing is everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, like the nothing and the never ending story is like constantly expanding and growing and it's going to take over this entire universe. Um, yeah. So I, 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 I thought that was interesting that it just kept taking me to that. Right. I like that idea. <clears throat> and I think it's more common in something actually to bring it back to like Gamma World where you have this irradiated or metamorphosis South where you have these irradiated areas, basically a bad place, mm-hmm. right? Now, I know D&D, essentially, every place is a bad place. Dungeon is a bad place. But literally, where the the ground, the earth, the sky cannot be counted upon, right? 
is an interesting thing to have, um, as opposed to having sort of intelligent foes battling mm-hmm. you. So, yeah, that's that's very um, unusual and imaginative, that scene. I mean, I'm sure there's a precedent for it somewhere, but but when I read that, I said, oh, yeah, that's really unusual. Why they're having to, you know, they literally can't know. Mm-hmm. And when they finally land, they're like, oh, you know, thank goodness. Yeah. Right. Um, and then the ship is amazing. Right. There's the, the Mananon McClear, the yeah. talking ship. Because there's uh, one of the, the the first of their three big, we're going to go through massive expanses of, of terrain, is when they hop on this ship. And basically it is a sentient, talking, thinking ship. And they have to pay their passage in copper ingots to get on. And basically, so the ship can continue to have itself repaired and yeah. fixed and stuff like that. And Zalobian and the ship become total buddies. Yeah. And like, there's like, you know, all this time is passing as they're going quite fast along the ocean. And they're just like spending their days chit chatting. And then one day they wake up in the middle of the ocean uh, and they look out into the water and they are surrounded by like what looks like these like metallic piranha. And the ship, McClear, is like, Guys, I can't move. I'm I'm out of fuel. Give me everything you have that's made of copper. Otherwise, we won't ever be able to leave again. Uh, the, the the adventurers all kind of quickly see through this, right. and they're just like, "Yeah, you're trying to." It's a little bait and switch. There. Yeah, you're trying to shake us down for our <laughs> copper. We're not going to have it. So there's kind of a fun scene where they go and they break into the area where his artificial intelligence is kept and they're threatening to use the manual override. Right. He's like, fine, fine, fine. Okay, fine. We can go. <laughs> right to just them on the shore someplace and then they have to work their way through the jungle, I think, at that point, right? Or yeah. Um, although I do like the that, um, that they included the little bit about how um, they did let the ship go back to continue to do whatever it's been doing and right. rip people off because, like, Zalobian still kind of liked the ship and kind right. of respected the ship for what it was trying to do. Right, and, right. Yeah, Zalobian, uh, you know, he doesn't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Players uh, got to play. Right, right. Uh, you know, I mean, he's, um, you know, they're, they're trying to do a greater good, but they're not, um, they're not uh, amoral, these lead characters, but they're not, they don't particularly seem to be concerned about, you know, righting earthly wrongs. They're just worried about this moon crushing the earth, you yeah. know, once and for all. It seems yeah. to be the thing. Um, and then on the ship, that's where they meet Holy Hoprig, who's this kind of um, evil pilgrim leader. Right. And he's the one who's got Arzila held captive. And when they get off the ship, Holy Hoprig and the pilgrims travel through the wilderness with our adventurers. And there's a moment where Holy Hoprig uh, poisons the gang. He like offers them some wine. And um, the, the, the cup that he gives to Ganelon is poisoned, not the wine itself, just the cup. And um, because he's poisoned, he ends up like falling into a slumber and he's going to die. And Zalobian knows that the only way to fix this is by going to this one town and getting this right, the anecdote. Pi- the Piomazian's town. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so that's where he sells himself into slavery, as we talked about. Exactly. Right? So uh, Arzila joins them and Arzila and Ganelon go and manage to do this. And I think there's some fun stuff in that town because one of the part of the problem is when they get there, we discussed in the last episode how they use the barter system. And when you when you go from town to town, you might be able to include some kind of fun things about currency. In this one, this town does not accept the, the kind of currency they use are these like kind of like China squares. 
and they don't use coins at all. So mm. the currency that they that the adventurers brought here is completely worthless. Completely worthless. No, which is why Zalobian no sells himself into slavery. No value as trade goods, essentially. Yeah. And like I think in your gaming, that can be really fun as well. Like I was just looking at the City State of the Invincible Overlord supplement from 1976 by Judges Guild. And one of the fun little bits of trivia about the City State of the Invincible Overlord is that people aren't allowed to give you change. Oh, there you go. If you walk into a brothel and it's going to cost you 10 silver to get a room uh, with a lady and you've only got a gold piece, right. then you're not getting any change. Right. The so only people who are legally allowed to give change are money changers. So you're either there for uh, two extra days or however many extra days it is. Or, or you're going you're to the money changer first. Right. Um, so it's just kind of a, a, like a little idiosyncratic thing about the economy of that place and in this particular town one of their things is that they're they don't use the kind of coins we use so our money is worthless there right right i think it's um you know taking it to the gaming thing we talked about it to sort of whittle down the player character's tendency to just accumulate more and more wealth you know either they have to force them to put it into investments or put it in a vault or do something with it, in which case they suddenly become the monster guarding their own dungeon, so to speak. <laughs> or, you know, finding other ways to separate them from it, whether it's, you know, a carousing mechanic, whether it's taxes to the overlord, whether it's using it for magical research. Uh, something so they're just not constantly walking around with, like, you know, the equivalent of, you know, a millionaire's uh, bounty in personal wealth in their, you know, pockets, I yeah. think is... is um, Helps the game, I yeah. think. You know, uh, you know. Of course, some some players will really bitch and moan about that. But I think if you use that as a impetus for adventure, then it's fine. You know, if you if if the players are just using this accumulated wealth that they gather in other games to sort of just sort of be able to turtle up, um, then maybe it's time to switch to the domain game or something like that. If if but if you know if you're not into that, you're not into that. So then you have to either say, okay, well, I, we've either got to shake this up a little bit. Or maybe it's time to retire these characters and, you know, move in another direction with the game. Yeah. And I think one thing that you can use from this particular scene in your games is just a reminder that conflict is really important in the story. And I think it's a good reminder to us to add in complications. Mm -hmm. So one of your characters is poisoned. Great. Well, if you travel over here, you can get the anecdote. Mm -hmm. You go to that place, you want to get your, I, said, I think I said anecdote, uh, antidote. <laughs> well, uh, we, can, we can always get anecdotes. <laughs> exactly. You can go there and get an anecdote about how to get the antidote. And um, so, fine, great. So you guys adventure there. You guys get to the place where they have the antidotes. Your money doesn't work here. Right. So what are you some service? Yeah. Are you going to barter? Are you going to steal? Right. Are you going to find a way to get some money? Like, how are right. you going to deal with this yeah. new complication? Right. All right. Will they send you on some mission in return for healing your, uh, you know, your character? You exactly. Know? You know, it's like they thought what they thought they had accomplished what they what they set out to do, but there's now another layer to that. Right. And then that's where you do your, you know, to be continued on the next session. Or yeah. That's good gaming. More, you know, so. Sure, sure. I think um, things to take out of each of the vignettes, you know, and at the end they encounter the senile being that's been plugged into the, you know, the city and the robots are taking yeah. care of him. Well, know. let's talk about that city. Yeah. Uh, is that the technological empire at the, at the last? Yeah. Yet, so basically what happens is um, after they end up, they, they do end up getting the uh, antidote. Um, Zalobian's been sold, into, sold himself into slavery to pay for it. Um, he's thrown into uh, Zobian's thrown into a big arena where they're fighting that big kind of monster octop- octopus slash centipede thing. They kill that. 
Or they don't actually kill it. They escape it, though, and that thing ends up going on a rampage and killing off most of the town. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when they get to the um, vast plains, uh, the the great plains of Vlad, and they find these giant land ships um, that kind of sail on the winds and on these giant wheels. And they ride along those for a while. They get involved with some pirates. And then they end up getting to the place that they want to go, and they find this giant floating city of iron that's floating like 18,000 feet in the sky at this like big crazy angle. Right. It used and to be it's, a war city, right? Like it's, yeah. Yeah, it's basically a flying fortress. Thing. And it's surrounded by the corpses of robots. Like there's all these like dead battle bots everywhere. These like giant and these little war robots all over the place. Most of them have been long since fallen apart and are decommissioned, but some of them are still like trying to operate. So like there's moments where they're walking through the planes and one of the bots activates and is like, halt, halt, or I'll shoot. And then like it tries to shoot, but it doesn't really work and it just kind of jams. And uh, But they do end up getting into the giant floating city and when they get there, they end up meeting the guy that you're referring to. Right, the tech, the last technarch. Uh, the last technarch, yeah, yeah. who's he's like thousands see, or millions of yeah, years old. He's basically, see now he's plugged into the machinery of the city. Uh, yeah, and his whole body is being kept alive because he's got these like little floating robots who are constantly growing different organs for him in vats and replaced. And he goes, he goes into surgery all the time, and they're like replacing him bit by bit. Um, but he is still a biological creature who has been alive for a very, very long time. But he's he's pretty pretty far gone in terms of sanity, which is also very um, – all of this is very Mutant Crawl Classics, mm-hmm. which I'm assuming also means it's very Gamma World because you've got this, this, this place of crazy fallen technology. You've got this ancient, ancient being who's still convinced that, like, he's living in the time in which his empire was at its peak. Right, right. And, you know, the robots are still serving them and, and, you know, sort of just keeping things ticking along. And then they discover the technology that they need to sort of blast them into bits, right? And they do. And but, um, not without some uh, – not, a, but they have some really fun scenes with The Last Technarch first because at one point um, – well, before they end up um, – because when they first find him, The Last Technarch thinks that they're – um, that they're his enemies and like he's like I'm gonna I'm gonna put you in prison and like they end up like going into like these very nice very nice suites right. um, and they they get to like have some food made for them by robots and get to take showers right. and Zelobion's have... like loving this new bed this first comfortable bed he's had he's yes. Like, yes and then the next day when they meet the when they meet up with the tech, last technarch again he thinks that they're like visiting dignitaries or something and they ask for a tour and he's happy to oblige. Um, and there's this really fun scene where um, they're walking around. There are huge sections of this palace or city. I forget kind of what where they're at at that point that are just like broken and d- demolished. And they ask to see one of the areas that's kind of demolished. And you can tell like he's kind of like struggling with the reality, like with making this work in his head. And he's like, oh, um, um. Yeah, we're not able to go there because uh, that's under construction right now. They're doing renovations. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been informed that they're doing renovations, so it's not safe for us to go there at the moment. But please come over here. Uh, this area here is still, uh, it, it, not still, it's, uh, it's, it's able to be seen right now. And You know, this makes me think of something, and I saw a little, and it didn't occur to me when I was reading it, but one of those remarks about Robert Price, uh, who was Lynn Carter's literary executor and a major um, 
H.P. Lovecraft's scholar. He was citing all the influences, and he actually cited the Oz books, and I didn't see it until just now. I said, oh, sure, okay, this is, they've encountered the wizard, but now the wizard's senile. Oh. All right, and behind the curtain. There was a few other phrases, like, um, out of Alice in Wonderland, the Boro Gove, like, Minzy were the Boro Groves. It was the, yeah. the Boro Gove Sea. So this one, I, okay, so this is the wizard. And the it's wizard a journey to the a journey to the Emerald City, right. and this is, oh, I can and totally see that. The Emerald City's that. totally in ruins. The wizard's senile, doesn't really know how to help them. Yeah. Uh, so... So there you have it. Um, and it's three adventurers. Yeah. So I mean, Two men and a woman. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean. Although Arzila certainly no Dorothy. <laughs> no Dorothy. <laughs> um, but anyway, so there's a little bit of that in there. So, you know, it's not the exclusive influence, but it's there. Yeah, so it's fun, like, pay no attention to this or, you know, that sort of disconnect with reality that the wizard has. And I like to, I like weird, crazy wizards. The wizard shouldn't just be like a list of spells, right? Yes. Right. So, so yeah, there's bits. I think there's scenes that you can play out both as character scenes, as action scenes, as weird settings. So as you say, there's lots of pieces you can slice and dice this for your adventures, your gaming. And in fact, I think we've talked about this before. Sometimes it's the fiction that's not quite as effective that kind of shows its seams that's easier to turn into your game than like that sort of jewel, like perfect Jack Vance prose or, you know, that weight of real authentic feeling history that you know in Tolkien right Mm -hmm. that's harder to cut up into pieces that you can sort of use at your table whereas something like this where you know the seams the cracks are showing you can say oh you know this other stuff is kind of lame but I can take this piece easily pull it right out and plop it oh yeah I think there's a lot that you could take from Mutant Crawl Classics a lot from that you could take from this and put into a Mutant Crawl Classics or a Gamma World game in fact I'm going to have to I, um, ask Jim Wampler this the next time that I see him. Jim Wampler is the person who wrote Mutant Crawl Classics. Um, because at the end of Giant of World's End, when they blow up the moon, it takes a few days. But once a few days have passed, it has reformed into a giant ring around the planet. Right. Silvery ring around the planet. Yeah. And in Mutant Crawl Classics, on, on Earth, there is a sky arc. Mm. There's a giant silver arc across the sky. And I know that at the end of Mutant Crawl Classics, the, uh, the book is not out yet, but I was a backer of it, so mm-hmm. I have a PDF. And the PDF, um, the book and the print book and the real one have a, an Appendix M. Yeah, M for Mutant. And I'm almost 100% sure that this book is not listed. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm looking right now. Um, it is not. It's Starship by Brian Aldiss, Hot House by Brian Aldiss, Daybreak 2250 by Andre Norton, No Night Without Stars by Andre Norton, High Rose Journey, and The Unforsaken Hero by Sterling E. Lanier, The Dying Earth by Jack Vance, and Empire of the East Trilogy by Fred Saberhagen. Hmm. So that is not listed. I'm curious if that's just a coincidence, uh, the sky arc and the end of Giant of World's End, because it's such an MCC kind of scene at the end, ending in what's kind of the, um, the centerpiece of the 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 sky in the MCC world. Right. Um, yeah, I'm curious. Well, you know, certainly if it was not, uh, and again, I can't speak for Jim Wampler, I'm just talking about in terms of game influence, sometimes these books, uh, you know, were then filtered through something else, so there is still an influence, so to speak. Right? Sure, and also, I know Jim Wampler is a huge Gamma World fan. I know almost nothing about Gamma World, so maybe the sky arc is in Gamma World. Right. And Jim is using the Sky Arc, having no idea that perhaps the Gamma World Sky Arc came from Giant of World's End. Who knows? Who knows? This well, is where we just start 
right. hy- hypothesizing to the point of... Right. Like, we'll, we'll ask him if we ever get him on or when you have a sidebar with him. But uh, as I said, you know, sometimes... Also, sometimes, you know, um, we have tons of influence. You know, he's not going to cite every single influence or every single piece of information that was brought in to create, you know, MCC any more than Gary Gags. Yeah, I guess I think probably... You know, he he listed other things that you know were like fairy tales, but he didn't cite every single fairy tale that was an influence uh, on D and D. So I feel like uh, whether or not uh, Jim Wampo or anybody else who was involved with Gamma World or later on MCC ever read this book directly, certainly Gary Gygax did. Yes, right. And Gary Gygax obviously had a lot of interplay with uh, you know Jim Ward when he was creating Metamorphosis Alpha, which then became the predecessor to uh, Gamma World. So lots of flavor may have crept through. I don't know about that specific device of the moon arc, the sky arc, but a lot of that flavor has certainly come through uh, into the games that we now play. Yeah. Um, so I think, um, again, I, you know, we have reservations about this book as fiction, but as scenes, as bits, as things you can extract to sort of repurpose at your game table, I think there's plenty here. If you can find a reasonably affordable copy, you know, or hop into your time machine and get a nice copy like mine, um, then I think it's, you know, well worth looking at. I certainly wouldn't put it on the top tier of books. I would certainly put High Risk Journey, if you were playing MCC, as a much more important book to look at. Um, but and certainly if you're going through Appendix N, this one is is not optional because right. uh, it, it, is, it, it is specifically stated. Right. Yeah, if you're saying, I am going to read all the books that are specifically called out in Appendix N, it's there. But I would still not put it above, like, you know, the Jack Vance, you know, because it's clearly second generation, so why not go to the source first yes. and then go to this one second? Exactly. So, uh, any other last thoughts about Giants of the World's End before we, uh, you know, uh, move on to our final bits of business for the episode? Um, I guess the last thing that I would say is, um, I guess quickly, just that um, looking at the magic system in Giant of World's End, there are some things that we see that are familiar you know, um, there's a moment where he casts a spell called the vocable of the unwear of the unwearying constrictor, and he mentions that it lasts 30 hours. So it has a very specific spell duration. Right. Uh, then there's this, a, a point where he's trying to cast a spell near the beginning, but keeps failing. So that's very dungeon crawl classics. So there's one thing that's familiar from the old school, one thing that's familiar from the new school, and then one thing that I thought was interesting that I would like to see used is that when the, um, when the characters cast the invisibility spell and they're invisible for a while, they're talking about how difficult it is being invisible because they keep stubbing their toes <laughs> and they're not being very sneaky. Um, and when they do become, when the spell starts to wear off, it wears off gradually. Mm-hmm. So slowly they start to kind of become transparent. And I just thought that was a very fun, creative use of the spell invisibility, which I had never thought of before. Because, duh, if I'm invisible and I can't see how my body is relating to the world around me, it's going to be a lot harder to not be knocking everything over that I'm interacting with and a lot more difficult to just kind of pick up an object even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good, a good thing to point out. And I think just the same way that we can make uh, combat a little bit more descriptive to make our magic a little bit more descriptive, not just say, oh, the fireball goes off and does 3d8, or, you know, you're invisible for three turns, the guy doesn't see you, you sneak by him. Right? Yeah, so, oh, okay. you have a fireball that goes off. What what catches on fire? Right. You know, it's. I think it's good for us to remember that, like, when these spells happen, it's important for us to think, how would that actually manifest in the world that we're imagining? Sure. And I think DCC obviously is particularly good about that in terms of having, you know, the, the mercurial effects and the manifestations. D&D is very terse, and I think it leaves it a lot to the game master. So it tends to just say, here's the duration, here's the effect. 
but then doesn't say, you know, oh, the flames are purple or green or yeah. whatever. And so that leaves it more to the imaginative player or dungeon master to describe. And so to remember to bring that in um, and make that part of your game is, is uh, you know, I think a, a good thing to do. I agree. So, and I think with that, I think I have said all I need to say about this. Okay. Well, uh, we will be back soon. Our next two episodes will be El Sprague de Camp's Lest Darkness Fall. And then after that is Robert E. Howard's Conan of Samaria. That is the second book in the Lancer slash Ace series. Uh, okay, so if you like us, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps people find us. Uh, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. And if you're in the New York City or Tri-State area and you would like to come and join us in person for some games or to come to a real-life in-person Appendix N Book Club meeting, uh, please join our meetup. It's meetup.com slash dccnyc. And we also have a website, appendixnbookclub.com. And if you go there, you'll see uh, show notes for each episode as well as a complete master list of all of the stories we're reading. Uh, and there are great resources for, if you don't want to pick up all of these old paperbacks, other places in which you can find these stories online and such. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you in stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>